from TomDispatch.com, this is TomCast. Interviews and insight from Tom Dispatch contributors for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of our post-9-11 world and a clear sense of how our global imperial system actually works. I'm Timothy McBain. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with David Vine, an assistant professor of anthropology at American University and author of Island of Shame, the secret history of the U.S. military base on Diego Garcia. We talked about his research into the ever-expanding network of U.S. military bases around the world. You've been traveling around visiting military bases around the world. Uh, how many bases have you visited so far and, and where? I've visited upwards of 50 easily in countries including Germany, Italy, Japan, South Korea, Honduras, Ecuador, where the U.S. had a, a base closed in 2009, Guantanamo Bay, Guam, and then actually a series of bases in the U.S. just for comparative purposes. But my focus has been very much uh, outside the 50 states and D.C. How do you gain access to these bases? Well, uh, I guess the first point to make is that I don't always gain access. Um, I, I request access from the U.S. military, either by contacting the base itself or the Pentagon or both. Um, And in some cases, I also try to go through the armed service that has command over the base. Um, And in some cases, I've I've met with quite a bit of assistance and help from the respective branch of the armed services or the actual um, people in in charge of the base um, and and been shown around and been able to visit and speak to people. Almost always, I would say always, uh, with a high degree of supervision. So I'm, I'm never given sort of free reign to walk around a base, but instead have been escorted for every, literally almost every minute that I'm on a base. But in other cases, I've met with either complete silence in, in response to my requests for permission to visit and conduct interviews, or sort of been given the runaround, been asked to, you know, place a request with this office and then this office and then this office and sort of a, a comical at, at times. So it's, it's been, a, I've, I've had a range of reactions and sometimes I've just been denied access completely um, and instead have been forced to conduct research outside the, the fence with members of the local community um, and with any members of the, the U.S. military who will talk to me as individuals. Do you get the chance to interact with soldiers stationed on these bases, or is it more of just kind of a very, like you said you were closely guided, is it sort of a guided tour type of thing when you're there? Often. I, I would say the, the most extreme version of that was at Guantanamo Bay when I visited the, the prison there. We were very closely monitored, um, couldn't speak to any of the prisoners, spoke to a few guards who were extraordinarily nervous because it was clear that their their words were being monitored as, as closely as our questions. Um, at other times, the surveillance has been a little bit more lax, but almost always there's a, members, a member of the public affairs office that's, that's accompanying me and, and deciding uh, with whom I can speak and who I can't speak to. So that's been a certainly a, um, a constraint on my research, but I've, I've also pursued interviews, as I mentioned, with members of the U.S. military and civilians working for the military as individuals, so in, in which case I, I typically do the interviews off the base, and frequently people can be um, more candid as a result. And how were you received when you talk about uh, meeting with members of the communities around these bases? How did they react to, uh, to you doing research? 
I would say, uh, like without exception, um, people have been welcoming. Of course, people living around bases have a range of feelings and thoughts and interactions with the bases themselves. There are, of course, around many bases around the world, um, vibrant protest movements and people quite concerned about the presence of the bases. There are also large numbers of supporters of the bases, especially um, local business interests, politicians, um, and ordinary people, often who whose livelihoods are connected to the bases, but not always. But I would say, again, with very few exceptions, people have been willing and quite enthusiastic about talking to me about their experiences with the bases over the whole course of their lifetimes. And in most cases, these bases have been there for 50, 60 more years in some cases. And can you talk a bit about the difference between the mega bases, which are, you know, essentially, you know, U.S. cities abroad and the lily pad bases that you write about in your article? The difference is, is pretty significant. The, the mega bases are, are, are fairly astonishing just in the extent of the infrastructure. Um, in many cases, they look like um, large uh, U.S. colleges or universities with malls, with uh, shopping areas, fast food establishments, pizza huts, Burger Kings, McDonald's, etc., large recreation facilities, housing, everything that goes into a not just a uh, U.S. university or college, but a, a, a small U.S. town and um, sometimes thousands, tens of thousands of of U.S. military personnel and civilians and the family members of the military personnel are living on the bases or, or in surrounding communities. And then we look at the lily pads, and, and lily pads, they're not all cookie cutter. Um, there's actually a range there too, but they will generally have none of the or very few amenities of the kind you see at the mega bases. There'll be some limited amenities in terms of gyms and fitness facilities, but you won't see the large shopping areas. Um, you won't see the large numbers of fast food joints. And probably most importantly, you won't see family members. Um, and as a result, that's part of why you, you won't see all the amenities, which are in large part there to make sure that U.S. military personnel and their families are, are happy and at least relatively content on these bases and living outside the U.S. So the U.S. military can keep its labor in, in the military forces. It's a way to, to keep people happy and um, keep them from leaving the military in, in large part. You write about the U.S. increasing the number of bases in Latin America. Now, it's, it's been a while since the U.S. has taken an active military interest in Latin America. Why the resurgence? In some ways, I, I think we can see really a resurgence dating to the late 1990s with the period when the drug war really heats up. Um, there, was a, there was a period after the, the wars in Central America in the 1980s came to an end with the fall of the Soviet Union when the power of the Southern Command that is responsible for U.S. military activities in Central and South America, when its power really dwindled, um, its resources, the number of troops assigned, um, the size and number of bases. At the same time, U.S. negotiations with Panama over access to U.S. bases in, in Panama 
essentially failed, and the U.S. gets kicked out of Panama in 1999. In about the same period, you see the Southern Command essentially orchestrating a concerted effort to increase its presence throughout Latin America, piece by piece, by building stronger relationships with militaries, um, I would say especially in, in Central America, but increasingly in South America as well. Often the drug wars are the primary justification that's used to justify increased dollars from Congress um, and, and increasingly um, to justify uh, the construction of, of new bases. Often these bases are technically host nation facilities, but it seems that in most cases, uh, the U.S. military, in some cases other agencies within the U.S. government, the DEA, um, the State Department, others, uh, have access to these facilities. But specifically in reaction to the United States being evicted from bases in, in Panama, you see the U.S. building significant um, but relatively small new facilities in Aruba and Curaçao, in Ecuador, in El Salvador especially, to make up for, in the, in the minds of, of the U.S. military, the, the eviction from Panama. Um, later, the U.S. gets evicted from Ecuador. That then just, just justifies uh, the creation of new bases throughout the region. So you see a consistent upgrading and expansion of the, the U.S. presence throughout Latin America. The other main justification that's been used has been uh, the ability to conduct disaster relief and humanitarian actions, which to me and, and to many others, including members of Congress, seems like a, a dubious justification for creating U.S. bases or maintaining any significant U.S. presence in Latin America. Those sorts of activities can easily be carried out by U.S. forces based permanently in the United States. But again and again, you see humanitarian disaster relief activities as well as uh, the war on drugs being used as the justifications for increasing the U.S. military presence in, in Latin America. And in your opinion, this proliferation of bases, especially lily pad bases, around the world, is this a more pragmatic, cost-effective method of garrisoning the planet, or do you see this as being something that is going to just grow uncontrollably until it sort of collapses on itself? Well, the future, of course, is, is, is hard, to, hard, to, hard to know. Um, I think certainly one of the, the justifications, again, that U.S. military planners are, are using is that of, of cost-effectiveness. Of there also the, one of the other main concerns is the kinds of opposition that large U.S. bases have faced in places like Okinawa, South Korea, Italy, even in recent years. The hope in their minds is that, that small bases will um, not incite the same kind of opposition and protest that U.S. bases have faced elsewhere. One of my concerns, I have several concerns. Um, one is that bases, small and large, have have faced opposition and protest movements have, have arisen. Kyrgyzstan is one example where the U.S. has what's not um, that sizable a base um, that's been critical to the, the war in Afghanistan. And there, too, you've seen opposition just in a, a very short period of time, just in the, probably the first five years or so after the establishment of that base. Locals have, have grown quite concerned about its presence and some of the activities of, of U.S. military personnel. 
My other main concern is that that lily pads, as I mentioned, can can be many things um, and and can be um, bases of of different sizes, still relatively small, but but often lily pads can start small, um, and that can be the language used to to justify their their creation. It's just a lily pad. We just need a few million dollars. That can then become the nucleus for a much larger base. Um, once bases get established over time, we've seen they, they often have a tendency to just grow larger and larger with new justifications brought forward before Congress to, to ask for um, increased military construction dollars and, and to maintain um, their presence over time. So my concern is that, that while a lily pad might sound good as, as a, an alternative to the, the mega bases we've seen in Germany and Italy and Japan, South Korea, that they represent really a, a threat in, in, in a number of senses. First, as bases that, that might grow into the same kind of um, large bases we've seen elsewhere, but also because it means the United States is getting involved in, in more and more countries around the world that heretofore we've not had a presence in, um, the U.S. is getting involved in new conflicts and new wars that the U.S. public really isn't all that aware of, and where the consequences of getting involved in those, those wars, those conflicts, those countries um, are, are very hard to predict and may, in fact, be quite, quite dangerous. Uh, one of my main concerns with, with the proliferation of these lily pads is that um, it's all happening under the radar, other than um, a few stories we're seeing trickling out of the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, there's basically no discussion of the United States getting involved in and creating military facilities in a really huge number of countries around the world that, you know, countries like Burkina Faso, um, Mauritania, um, countries that, you know, most people in the United States couldn't even place on a map. You know, why is the United States building new military facilities in countries like that? Why is, it, why is the United States building new military facilities in Honduras, where the United States has had a presence since the early 1980s? What is the, the purpose of these bases? What are, they, what are they doing? Why is the United States spending so much money on them? And what are the effects of these bases? And, and, and how might they be you know, quite dangerous, in fact, um, rather than serving any security purpose? I'm concerned that many of them might be increasing um, levels of militarization locally and, and really endangering local security and in both the short and long-term U.S. national security. To read David Vine's article, The Lilypad Strategy, How the Pentagon is Quietly Transforming Its Overseas Base Empire and Creating a Dangerous New Way of War, please visit TomDispatch.com. You can also find David's book, Island of Shame, at Amazon.com or at any quality bookstore near you. I'm Timothy McBain, and until we meet again, thanks for listening.